If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Blog Talk Radio. Come on, there you go. Crank up the band. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. Good evening and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, May 11th, 2017. This is Michael Norris along with... Bobby Simmons, Jerry Oates, and Jay West, the full full battalion is, is on the march for the first time in a while. How are you guys doing this evening? All right. Doing well. Nice to be here. You're just like a mole on Marilyn Monroe's face. You're just happy to be here, huh? That's it. <laughs> Oh. Well, since the last time we uh, have been on this, the air, we've uh, lost a few people. Um, I found out uh, after we did last Thursday show, or actually I found out the same day, I just forgot, didn't get a chance to mention on the air last night, or last week, uh, a uh, former guest of ours, um Smokey Galento passed away last Monday, the, the first. And uh, just just yesterday or day before, um, Hans Schroeder passed away. Have you guys well, usually, Dave, usually Dave Meltzer mentioned that mentions that on the Observer, but he said he is behind because of the time that he spent out there. Uh, with Bobby having a good time in Las Vegas. So uh, I'm sure here uh, the uh, Wrestling Observer will have information on both of those guys next week. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Because well, I didn't know anything uh, about either one of them. I don't know about I, I mean, Well, Smokey, he may, not, he may not even know Smokey. She was uh, Mario Galento's widow, and she did, a, did our show, I, oh, Lord, I guess it's been three or four years ago. Uh-huh. Talk about all the uh all the people she pulled a gun on to protect Mario. <laughs> Jeez. Oh man. Yeah, she was more dangerous than he was. And somebody else, he was not uh not a wrestler, but he was probably the dean of wrestling historians, uh J. Michael Kenyon, whose real name was uh Mike um Oh, what was his last name? Grover or something. Anyway, he was best known as J. Michael Kenyon. He was uh uh former radio sports uh announcer, um 
newspaper columnist, did all kind of stuff, and and has been a wrestling historian. Lord, I couldn't going back. I don't know how far. And most of the guys that like Scott Teal and and Kip Ballman and people like that that have written books about different stuff. Uh, J. Michael was, uh, you know, uh, one of their biggest sources and been a big help. But I never met the guy. Did you? He used to come to Cauliflower Alley, Alley Bob. Did you ever run across him? Yeah, I never, never was close to him, but I did have a chance to meet him. Uh, he was also a childhood friend of Dean Silverstone. They both grew up in Seattle. So, um, but anyway, he was. Uh, you know, around for a long time, and, and he was 83 years old, and he's been in basically been in congestive heart failure for the last several years. But uh, what a character this guy was! I mean, even if he'd never had anything to do, period, with the wrestling business, he would have fit right in because of some of the crazy stuff he did. You know, in his other life. But um, uh, his, his name was well known, you know, in the wrestling yeah. circles. Yeah, I'm sure Dave will, will do something about uh, on him. And the J, if you put a, a period after the J in of uh, J. Michael Kenyon, he'd, he'd yell at you because he he said it was just J. And that, like <laughs> I said, that wasn't his real name. He just made that up. Right. Um, he had he had uh, been a um, newspaper columnist under his real name, Glover. I think that was his name, Michael Glover. Um, for years in Seattle, and then he left there and went to Baltimore. And, I, and I'm just trying to go by memory of stuff I've read on him this past week, uh, so I may get some of the facts wrong. But he went out there, and it was and. Uh, when he went back to Seattle, he, he decided to change his name. He just Picked it out of the air and uh, uh-huh. added the J to make it sound more distinguished. <laughs> so, well, these were the days re- before the internet. Before yeah. the internet, you know, and uh, it was a way sometimes to have a life, uh, you know, away from what you did for a living. Because uh, if 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 people knew you uh, by your name and you know byline or the name that you used on the air, then, uh, you know, your name would be in the phone book, and you'd then constantly be bugging it. So this, that was one of the ways to uh, keep that from happening was by having a pseudonym. Of course, you'd look for one that was, uh, you know, nice-sounding or easy to remember. Uh, and, uh, you know, once, once you became fairly well-known with that name, uh, you had to pretty well stick with it because if you went to something else, uh, you know, you pretty well lost your background. As of today, with the Internet and everything, any, everybody knows about everybody, it, uh, it yeah. really uh, doesn't make much difference. What name did you use as your, for your on-air personality? Uh, well, Mark, Mark, giving away the secrets here, at 70 years of age, as of yesterday. Uh, <laughs> Mark, oh, yeah, by the way, real- happy birthday to you and happy birthday to Bobby. Um, Jerry, you and you and I are the uh, the only ones that didn't have a birthday this week, so I guess we're the kids now, and they're the, the exactly. adults. <laughs> uh, my uh, my real name is Claude, 
Jeffrey right. West. And uh, Claude was, uh, during the Army, my father's uh, buddy in the Army was named Claude Durham, and then uh, Daddy's uh, name was James West, but he went by Jimmy. So they both said, if we get out of here, which they were in the Philippines, uh, they were both already married. He said, uh, I'll, I'll name my son after yours, and you name your son after me. And so uh, that's how that came about. Uh, the Jeffrey is a uh, very extended uh, version. It's not uh, the normal way you would spell it, and it's not the English G. I won't go into all the details, but anyway, it's part of my uh, maternal grandfather's name. And uh, so, you know, I didn't think either one of them were specifically great. And even before I got into radio, when I was uh, working in a band in high school, uh, you know, other than after high school where everybody knew my real name, I started using the name Jay West. And uh, it stuck, you know, and there's enough of a uh, continuation of my real name there that uh, I'm really not taking it far. However, I will say that, when I filled out my uh, security clearance paperwork when I went to work for the Army, uh, I had to uh, I had to list Jay West as a, as a pseudonym uh, because they wanted to know all the names that you used other than your real name. Right. <laughs> and then you check they check you out to see if you're some kind of uh, you know an espionage person. <laughs> Just think if Don Fargo had to fill out one of those all the the pseudonyms right. he'd have to you. Of course, he couldn't yeah. write, so the only thing he he learned to uh, sign autograph wise was was the Don Fargo part. I, I when I had him autograph uh, my Gulf Coast belt that he actually made, and he and uh, Frank both held together. I had to tell him how to spell Jack Dalton because that was the name he was using when he held it. Wow. <laughs> <clears throat> But anyway, that, that, that's, a, that's a good piece. Of, that's a good piece of trivia right there, Mike. Yeah. What? As far this ain't got nothing to do with the wrestling business. But since we're talking about names, I'll give you a little better story than that. My wife, whose name was Deborah Irene Hester, we were talking one time about how we got our names. Now, I wasn't named after anybody. My name just something my mom pulled up that liked, but. My wife, her grandfather fought in World War II. And when he was in France, he had an affair with a French lady who became pregnant. As you would do if you're in France. (laughs) And had a set of twins. Well, when he came home, he felt so guilty about it that he confessed to Debbie's grandmother, who for her, for the time, was a very forward thinking woman, and said, Hey, if she brought you comfort while you were in combat and in war, you know, I forgive you, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, Debbie was named for the woman he had the affair with in France. <laughs> Thus, the D-E-B-I spelling Debbie used for her name, because that's the way the lady spelled it in France. Wow. So that's, that was, a, you know, it was interesting story. She didn't tell many people that, and I've never told anybody, and now I'm telling the world. But that wow. was uh, that was how Debbie got her name. That's very interesting. Well, I got I got one too. My great grandfather, his name was General Clinton Bird. That was his his given name, but the general was spelled uh, with a J. Don't ask me why. I don't. I have no clue. 
And, of course, my grandmother's name, before she married my grandfather, her name was Looney Bird. L-U-N-N-I-E. Looney oh. Elizabeth Bird. I used to kid her all the time. I said, you married the first person to ask you, didn't you? Just so you wouldn't be spend the rest of your life as Looney Bird. She failed to see the humor yeah, in that. Yeah, that'd, be a real, that'd be what they call today. That'd be what they call today a case for bullying in school. Uh, you know, with a name like that. My family has a ton of oddly named folks, especially as you go back the generations. You know, three or four generations ahead of me. My great grandmother, who was married to General uh, Clinton. Uh, her name was Nisi May, and he was six foot eight, and she was about a four foot eight, four foot nine, something like that. There was a I, the only um, I don't remember him. He died after I was around when he was still alive, but I don't really remember him. I remember my my uh, as I called her Mama Bird. I remember her quite well, but. I uh, they had a picture made on their 50th wedding anniversary, standing side by side, and she's about height of his hip pocket. So the yeah. thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Six foot eight, he could have been a pro wrestler, you know. <laughs> he was some skin and bones, though. But oh, well, I okay. guess he could have, because he he was he was a mean drunk. I tell you that. All of all the birds were. That's why I never drank. I was afraid I'd fall into that category. But anyway, uh, we will be joined at some point uh, this evening, probably in about uh, two, three more minutes, because I told him to give us a call about 8.15. Um, Kurt Nielsen is going to join us. No relation to Art Nielsen, as far as I know. Um, But Kurt is... um, Lord Kurt's done a little bit of everything. He works uh, for Walt Disney... Um, he's uh, built websites when when uh, Percy Pringle was was still alive. He built uh, Percy's website. He's done the Cauliflower Alley website, and um, I don't know if I've got a copy of it around here. He did something. I don't remember the circumstances behind it. I'll get him to tell us. He did a video, an animated video of a wrestling match. And uh, the referee was our dear friend, Charlie Smith, and and Charlie did the voiceover for it. I've seen that. The funniest thing in the world, uh, Charlie, who is a living cartoon anyway, (laughs) to see him him animated, you can't hide that voice. No. Before we get too carried away, guys, uh, I can't remember if I've done this show since all of this happened with me or not. Uh, I got tons of, of calls and cards and letters when my mom passed away. Oh my God, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know, Bobby. And I didn't know if I've had a chance to thank everybody or just express. Uh, I got emails. I mean, it was just you know people found out, and I just, uh, I just want to thank everybody. It's been a it's been a tough time. I'm 62 years old, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I miss her dearly. And uh, 
I just uh, I just want to thank everybody. I don't want to get too mushy or sentimental, but I just I appreciate everybody that reached out and shared a thought or a kind word. It uh, it helped a lot. So uh, that's enough. I just wanted to thank everybody. Yeah, Miss Miss Margaret was was a saint. She not only put up with Bobby, she she liked Rocket Monroe of all people. Yeah, she did. <laughs> but I never figured that out. Guy. But anyway, let me get uh, Kurt on here with us. Well, where did he go? I'm I'm here. Hello. Okay. Hey, Kurt. Welcome to Tuesday hey Pandemonium. This is Michael, along with uh, Bobby Simmons, Jay West, and Jerry Oates. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine. I just got home from work and uh, just cracked open a beer and let the good times roll, okay. right? <laughs> You're doing better than all uh, of us, man. Well, no, I was just it, it was just talking about the uh, the animated video that you did, and I don't remember the uh, the the background on that. Why you did that? Where you you use Charlie Smith's voice for the referee. Oh, sure. Well, that was a pilot for a TV series that I tried to pitch, and it was a little bit, I think, um, a little bit too soon. I think if I had (laughs) tried that a few years later, it might have gelled a little bit better because, well, you know, WWE at this point is now doing animated cartoons and so forth. Um, A lot of things, you know, just for streaming purposes. um, But I think, yeah, it was just a little too soon. There wasn't quite the market uh, for it yet. Uh, Kurt, this is Jay West. When when did you do it? Oh, uh, let me see. This would have been two thousand two thousand one, two thousand two, right around that time. And uh, how did you uh, how did you uh, just run across Charlie and get the idea to use his voice for the cartoon? Well, of course, I met Charlie through uh, Cauliflower Alley Club and uh, the Gulf Coast Wrestlers Reunion. Um, of course, I used Charlie. I used Percy Pringle, uh, Playboy Buddy Rose, Ed Wiskowski, and Les Thatcher as well. And the concept behind it was to use guys who still had personality and something to offer, uh, you know, entertainment-wise, uh, but just in a different context. And... Um, it could still work, but, you know, unfortunately, most of the guys that I just listed uh, aren't with us any longer. So <laughs> so there's, there's a few that have gone away. Uh, Buddy Rose and Percy, of course, are gone now. So, Hey, Kurt, this is Bobby. Those of us that saw it, we were scared because if you deal with Charlie on a daily basis, we thought it was a horror <laughs> film. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlie is something special. I, I... <laughs> No, Charlie. I, I know Charlie's he's listed. That's why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Charlie. Well, and, and again, Charlie's one of those guys with just really unique talents, and uh, you know, you can't. Yeah, just unique take him is a good word for him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, you know, someone like me who does animation, who draws cartoons, you hear that voice, and you got to do something with it. You know, you can't just leave it be. It's, you know, Charlie's Charlie's. A great guy. I, I'm really glad that that he was part of that. And who knows? Maybe something else will come up down the line. He's still a young man, after all. That's true. <laughs> no, but it's it's good fun. Uh, as I said, it just came a little too early, um, but um, you know, I'd be happy to kick it off. But yeah, the the two the two leads in that, uh, unfortunately, they're they're gone now. Uh, as I mentioned, Buddy Rose and uh, and Percy Pringle, but. Uh, you know, we can take it in different directions. At least we still got Charlie, right? <laughs> That's right. We got Charlie. 
Yeah. We'll get Jerry to do a voiceover on one of them. Hey, that would be nice. That would be nice, but it was nice to run into a few of the guys at, at Cauliflower Alley Club. Um, I was with uh, with Ed Wiskoski, and I was kind of watching over him a little bit because he's he's having a few health issues right now. But um, uh, anyway, I couldn't go to the banquet. Uh, I was kind of kind of running around doing this and that, but um, it was nice to see a few of you guys at least. Well, let me ask you, how did you get involved with um, like I said, you've been to the reunions and everything. Have you? Did sure. you ever do anything inside the the um, wrestling industry itself? As far well, I as did. I did, yeah, I I started with uh, All Pro Wrestling in Northern California uh, with Roland Alexander, and um, I just you know this was in the late nineties. I was volunteering um, just to get into the business, I, I did anything, you know, I helped them set up rings. Um, I helped, uh, in the office, I ran errands for them, whatever they wanted to do. And they saw my, uh, my loyalty and my dedication. And so they asked me to become a cameraman for them. And so I did that for a long, long time. Um, I worked the gimmick tables. I was in charge of bringing the gimmicks to, um, to the shows. And, uh, then they said, well, we no want to accelerate you along the role. With Charlie Smith. <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. But yeah, they. Uh, but because uh, because I was working so hard and being so loyal, and because I knew so much so much of the business and respected it, um, they decided to train me for free um, to work as a in managerial role. Um, all the while, I was working um, with Roland in the office. And, you know, I was his right-hand man for, you know, a long time in many regards. Uh, but, yeah, I, I was trained to work. And so I, I learned you know, pretty much everything about the business that way. Is he, but is he still operating? Yeah. Uh, the uh, All Pro Wrestling is. Roland passed away, uh, I want to say, about That's three right. years he did ago now. Away. I forgot about that. For, and, yeah, and if I'm not mistaken um, – because there, there was a documentary that I saw somewhere along the line, and he was featured in yeah. it quite a bit. He's Absolutely, the one yeah. That, I was uh, trained John Cena, right? Uh, where Cena got his Cena. start, where he was the, the prototype or something like that. Well, John Cena was based out of Southern California. I know uh, Matt okay. Heisen, who became Spike Dudley, came from our group. Um, uh, Vic Grimes, uh, Aaron O'Grady, who became Crash Holly. Um, they they trained. Um, he became the giant thing in WWE. Uh, unfortunately, that led to I, I don't know if you remember this or not, but uh, during training, he actually ended up killing a guy with repeated choke slams. And uh, there, there was a lawsuit levied against. It, yeah. it was pretty bad, and that lawsuit levied against Roland uh, basically destroyed Roland's life. But of course, it doesn't bring back the, the life of the person that you know actually died in the ring. Uh, it's a horrible thing. But and Kurt uh, also you know, I, has the. Uh, yep. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm fine. I was going to say Kurt is also the uh, has the distinction of being the uh, biggest fan in the world of one Plowboy Frazier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> many of us uh, have fond memories of him one way or another, but uh, well, of course. In fact, your your screen name for a lot of years was Plowboy. 
or Plowboy Nielsen. Oh, it still is. It still um, is. <laughs> and uh, I know one time you had a website, Uncle Elber's Cabin. Is that still yeah, op- it's, operating? It's still, yeah, it's plowboyfraser.com now, but it's been that way for a little while. I haven't updated it in a while, but uh, it's just because I have so many things going on in my life, but it's still a big part of my life. In fact, uh, just recently, I, I got an autographed picture of Uncle Elmer. He signed it as Uncle Elmer. I, it, all the years that I've been going around, I haven't actually been able to find one. It cost me $100, too, by the way. So. <laughs> but, uh, so Kurt, no, is, Kurt has been to yeah. Stan's, uh, Stan's grave in, in Biloxi. Absolutely, yeah. Now, he, uh, Stan was in the Korean War. Now, the interesting thing about that was he was underage. Uh, he was 16 years old when he enlisted, but he was so big he looked like a man. Uh, but because of uh, his service there, that is what sustained him in later life when his health really started to give out on him. And uh, he was living in the, the VA hospital, of course. Um, but thank goodness for that, you know, obviously being arrested. Sure. Yeah, he wouldn't have had any other health benefits certainly for his size with with all of his you know numerous <laughs> physical ailments no one would have taken him so very true but the, the amazing thing about him is you know, of course uh, me having grown up in mobile and he was you know a lo- fairly local guy being from Pascagoula oh, yeah. that yep. uh that you know but even then he wasn't in the territory all the time they would bring him in for special kind of like they did Andre later on um, of course and he did all of his I mean he was big Ed younger in Louisiana uh there in like 66 he was the convict in 67 and 68 and yep in the mobile area and he was uh when that, when he first started you know working up on the mobile Dothan end without instead of being the convict he was just called big tiny yeah and um in fact he would he would work in Mississippi as the convict and then go to Dothan and he was big tiny all at the same time but um, <laughs> yeah. um but he worked in Omaha for for the Dusics out there oh, yeah. he worked in California as, as the convict i think that's where he started that gimmick um yes absolutely I know oh, he, he worked, worked up in the uh, Pacific. He, he worked in the Pacific Northwest for uh, Dean Silverstone yeah. as well. Yeah, he 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 was really you know a, sort of a well I wouldn't say a classic journeyman, but he uh, he was I guess more like Man Mountain Mike would have been you know during that time period. But yeah. the difference was he kept changing his identities, mostly because of his personality and his. Um, you know, he had an ability to uh, portray different characters that, and that a lot of guys, a lot of his contemporaries didn't have. You know, and it's, uh, it, Kurt, it was unique. Uh, Kurt, this is Jay West. How did you, how did you decide uh, that you wanted to do a book on uh, Stan? Well, you know, he's he's one of those guys that, you know, <laughs> here we are talking about him. He he left an impression on a lot of people, good or bad. But he's one of those figures from another era that um, will vanish in time if it's not cataloged. I just felt that he was too important to the industry in his own way to not document his achievements. You know, it's and now I, that's not to say that he was 
great in the ring. He certainly wasn't, but he was uh, he was a good draw and um, a captivating personality, an interesting personality. And, um, you know, inside and outside of the ring, people always have really remarkable sort of over-the-top stories about him that, that really deserve to be chronicled. So that's, yeah, that's uh, why I, that's, I, I just figured might as well be me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Jerry, did you, Jerry, did you ever work with uh, Stan? Never worked with him, no. See, that's well, who you should have you should have teamed with instead of the McGuire twins. <laughs> or you or you could have had him in there too. I have all of them in there. Yeah, that would have done you it. Mentioned, <laughs> Kurt, you mentioned Man Mountain Mike. They they had a battle royal oh. in Mobile in nineteen seventy three that had Stan and Man Mountain Mike both in it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> of course they were the first two out because everybody jumped on them and threw them out first. Of course. <laughs> Well, you know, the thing about Stan is he could actually work a little bit. Not a lot, but just a little bit. If you watch some of his older matches in particular, um, he would do more than the typical big man spot. Um, I saw one match from about 1980, so this would be, what, Southeastern Championship Wrestling? Yeah. And he did yeah, a... He was... um, yeah, and he did, he did a sort of a... It's hard to describe it, but sort of like a rolling suplex. Yeah, and uh, I've never I've never seen him in any other time in his career do anything than the typical big man moves. But he could wrestle. It's just that he was well, he was lazy. He didn't have to do anything more than that, you know. Um, right. But I, I I would certainly place him. You know, a lot of people lump him in with the McGuire twins and you know and other just big fat guys of of that time period. But you know, he lasted for thirty years. I mean, there had to be more than that. Uh, for him to have a sustained career like that. Yeah, him, with him being a local, I remember him not only from, from wrestling, but but uh, he was the bouncer slash entertainment at a place called the Red Barn just across the Mississippi state line from, from going from Mobile into uh, Mississippi. Oh, um, man. <laughs> and was, it was a great singer, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things that his wife has mentioned to me that, that he wanted to record an album. And uh, at one point he had some songs that were recorded live and I never tracked it down. I, I couldn't find the guy, but that, that was something he really wanted to do. He did have a good voice. And the only, the only evidence that people have of that is uh, from the, the wedding of uncle Elmer when he, he sang to his, um, his wife. Yeah. But he did a good job on that. Yeah, he was. It was. It was nothing to go over there to the Red Barn, um, which I I used to do occasionally, even though I was way underage. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I I used to you know he I don't know if they ever paid him to do that. All I he was the bouncer, he was the, or the doorman, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, but he'd grab a guitar and go sit on the stage and start singing, and he was. Uh, a very well liked guy. There was another place there that he worked as well. It was called the uh, the State Line. It was mm-hmm. that was literally on the State Line. That was the reason they called it that. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was a big big favorite uh, in and around the Gulf Coast territory. And I mean, how they used him was, you know, he would he would come in, you know, kind of like they did with Andre later on. Uh, sure. You know, the heels, you know, would get out of hand, and you know, the the top baby faces bring him in to be his tag team partner or whatever. 
but he spent more time, I think, in Tennessee than anywhere between Memphis and, and uh, the Nashville and when Goulas was operating. Oh, um, absolutely. Well, and it's it's because his personality fit in with sort of the the weird structure of Memphis. Memphis was kind of a cartoon to begin with in many regards. I mean, anything goes in Memphis. And uh, as you know, he played multiple characters and everybody knew it was him at the same time, but it just, it, it didn't really matter. Um, you know, it, it helps that Jerry Lawler was, was really keen on him. They were really good friends and he probably gave him more of an extended run just based on their friendship. But um, no, in Memphis, he, you know, even after his WWF run, um, he came there and he, he worked for quite a while. Um, you know, even though he was, you know, at this point in his late fifties and not mobile at all, um, he, he was still a draw. He was still a personality. Um, in Memphis, they would work around that. Um, you know, you had a lot of guys there that that were so beloved they they could work well into their later years, and and it almost didn't matter what what your work was. I mean, people loved and respected you, regardless. And uh, you may not know this, but I'm, I've always wondered how in the world, because, I mean, I hadn't thought about Pablo Frazier in probably <laughs> since that last run in Southeastern in the early 80s. How in the yeah. world did Vince McMahon tap him to come to New York? Well, I mean, think of it this way. I mean, Jimmy Hart was his manager in Memphis for a long time when he was a heel. That's true. Um, That's true. And he also worked with, with Jim Morris, who became Hillbilly Jim. Um, right, when he was so, Harley Davidson. Yeah. yeah, Harley Davidson, of course, sure. sure. So um, what happened was um, they were giving Hillbilly Jim the big push, and he got injured in a match in San Diego. There was a, a wet spot on the floor, and he slipped, and his kneecap got ripped out of its socket. So he was on the shelf for um, a long time, several months, a pretty serious injury. So they, they wanted to keep him in the headlines. And so they they thought, well, we need someone for him to manage. And they figured, well, bring in, bring in his uncle. And it just kind of made sense. Um, you know, Stan sort of was a sports entertainer before it was fashionable, you know. <laughs> yeah. So he, he fit the criteria perfectly. And, of course, they wanted big men. And, he, you know, he's a guy almost the size of Andre. You know, just he, he just walks into a building and, and he makes an impression. So... Um, it almost didn't matter that he couldn't do too much out there. It was just this, just this big monster coming out, and yeah, he fit perfectly. But uh, of course, he couldn't work very well, so they had to bring in someone who could do more of the mechanics. And then they uh, brought in Lanny Keene, who was uh, cousin Junior. Uh, cousin Junior didn't last too long. Then they brought in um, cousin Luke, um, Gene Lewis. Yeah. So yeah, Gene Lewis exactly. And, uh, of course, Gene Lewis worked that gimmick um, for the rest of his life. You know, it was, it was such a strong gimmick for him. Uh, but, uh, no, it was, it, it was just that window of time was just perfect for him to come in, and, and it just made sense. And I imagine that uh, compared to a lot of the other places that uh, he was going to work towards the end of his career, uh, this was a good payday for him. Oh, this was a great payday for him. He was making some serious, serious money. Um, but, you know, the problem was when he came in, he was, you know, he was 54 years old. 
you know that would be that would be difficult for anybody who's been working in in wrestling for years but especially when you're 450 pounds nearing 7 feet tall you know he had a lot of health issues and um the you probably know the, the travel schedule that they held all of the boys to was it, it was insane it was completely nonsensical they wouldn't you know they wouldn't go from uh, San Francisco to San Diego, and then to Phoenix, Arizona. They would they would go from San Francisco to Peoria, Illinois, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and then they would then they would go to to Portland, Oregon. And it's just uh, the guys were getting worn out, you know, the, even the young guys. But someone like Stan Frazier, he just it, it really took a toll on him. I can't imagine that. <clears throat> Bobby, do you you remember Jerry when you guys were were still fans? Do you remember him working here in Georgia? I know he did under various guises. I I know he was he was Ed Ed Younger here too, and then he was Big Tex under mask, and then he was the convict. Even even before that, somewhere he was the uh, yeah. He was a country plowboy originally. Yeah. yeah, I can remember. Yeah. I can remember introducing him uh, in '79 uh, in Atlanta. You know, uh, uh, he was uh, he was brought over from Alabama, and yeah. uh, so you know he he was in here twice. And uh, but during during that uh, period of the Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, I, I I saw him twice here. You know, two different times. And uh, Robert Fuller brought him in. Yeah, uh, I know Robert Fuller the, was the deal with the Freebirds. Right, brought him in the last time. And uh, so he he was, uh, you know, he was the kind of guy, in my opinion, that here he he made a big pop. Uh, you know, when he would come in, particularly if he was used correctly, uh, but he he wore out fairly quickly also. And, exactly. Uh, Well, it's it's like Abdullah the Butcher. I mean, how long can you keep him in an area? He gets stale really quick, and everybody knew it. So, Haystack Calhoun, it's it's the same bit. And and Andre, yeah. they kept him on the road all the time because the gimmick wears out. It doesn't matter right. how there's talented a, you are, you know. If if you're a gimmick, you're a gimmick. There's only a certain type of match they can work, and there's only a certain type of guy they can work with, and exactly. uh, you know, to to make it entertaining for the audience. And uh, you know, you you. You play them around the circuit and two or three times, and uh, then it's time for them to move on. But it did seem that, to me, Alabama and, to a greater extent, Tennessee was a kind of uh, homestead place for him to work. Well, it's, and I think it's just because he became so beloved as a personality. Um, people, after a while, just accept you for what you are and well, it's like Giant Baba, you know, he was so popular everywhere that he went, um, you know, he, he couldn't wrestle like he used to, so he started doing comedy matches, but people still wanted to see him no matter what, it was, it just became part of the tradition, and of course, Giant Baba sure. is so well respected, um, not saying that Stan was in the same category, but um, it's just one of those things, people just, they love you so much, it's, well, it's like Jimmy Valiant, will he ever retire, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I think Jimmy's just going to skinny away. 
Oh, He's got to be down to about 98 pounds by now. Oh, I know. I, I I saw some footage of him recently. But you know what? People still love him, and they will suspend their disbelief for that moment because it's uh, Jim Galliott. Another one is Bob Armstrong. Uh, I mean, I'm, yeah, look at that. I mean, it's you know, even even when Terry Funk comes back to the ring, and who knows, he probably will again. You know, it's just people people want that, and they accept it, and it's just. It's it's just one of those things in, in wrestling that you can't quite explain, but it's 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 real, you know. Yeah, I I, I think you know with uh, you know well Percy told me that um, he was um, booking some of the smaller towns for world class. It was about eighty nine ninety, and he brought in uh, you know Stan was Uncle Elmer for him, and he said that it it didn't matter that. You know, he was big and he couldn't do too much in a match. People saw him. They remembered him. The memories flooded back, and and that's what it meant to them. It's just it was it's like seeing an old friend again, and that's that's all that mattered. Yeah. It's, well, I imagine up in New York he had an, a whole new clientele for his for his wristwatches. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I, I talk to I talk to many of the boys and they all tell me the same thing. I mean, I I can't think of anyone who who, you know, made it into the big time and still did things like that. He just he couldn't change his ways. And you know, it wasn't that people were angry at him, but it's just that it was just it's sort of quaint. He, he was he was something from an older generation that that still yep. hung on. You know, and he was he was an old fashioned con artist. I mean, he really was. You know, <laughs> the way you know these these watches that he would sell to the guys, these Rolex watches for twenty dollars. I mean, come on. <laughs> but you know, he would he would do so many things that um, that they would have done back in the early days. But he he couldn't change his he couldn't change his stripes. You know, um, but instead of that being uh, something that, that made people angry. They found it kind of endearing and charming. Uh, when, but, can uh, we, uh, when can we possibly look for the uh, the book to, uh, you know, come to full fruitation? Well, I'm, I'm trying to get it done within the next year. Uh, well, within the span of a year. Uh, so it started out, I was doing uh, a book with uh, Stan's widow, Joyce. Now, she's the one that, that married you know, uncle Elmer on, uh, on the Saturday night's main event. So she wanted her memories of their life together and his career, uh, to, to be commemorated somehow. So, um, we were, we were working on that for a while and it was actually in the form of a cookbook because, you know, obviously a man that big needs to eat a lot. <laughs> I would so, think so. Yeah, so I got some of the recipes that she made, some of her family, uh, the family recipes that were passed on down to her. Um, but um, Joyce passed away um, as we were working on the book. I shelved it for a long time, but I want to take what we started and expand on that. But I'll use that sort of as the, as the core of it all. Um, I don't think there's been a, a biography like that, at least for a wrestler. <laughs> But there's there's still a lot of the guys around who who remember him, and um, I want to get them all involved. You know, everybody everybody who knew him or worked with him has a strong reaction. Um, some are negative, some are positive, 
Um, I want to have all of that combined. Um, it, it sort of makes up the entire picture of who he was. So, yeah, uh, like I said, I, hopefully in the span of a year, I hope to get this all done. Um, well, it's going to be some work. <clears throat> Go ahead. Before Joyce passed away, was she able to put you in touch with any of his family members or anything? Because I know, I know absolutely nothing about his background. I have just a little bit of contact with the family. It's been a while. We started talking a little bit again recently. Um, I have family photos. I have a lot of connections here and there. But um, other than that, I mean, a lot of people have moved around a lot. So, um yeah, I mean, I, you know, even after all of these years, I don't even know who trained him for wrestling. I have no clue. I know he started in 1960, so that means that he wrestled for over 30 years, which is pretty amazing considering most big yeah. men, you're you're lucky to yeah. have a ten-year career. Um, but that's another mystery I'd like to find out. Um, yeah, the other thing I want, that is, I don't know where he would have where he started or anything because, like I said, he didn't pop up on. Um, and, and on my radar until I, the first time I saw him was in 1971. But he'd been in and out of the Gulf yeah. Coast areas. I've you know done research on on that territory, and I've seen results of him in, like I said, places like Omaha. And of course, he was a convict in sure. in California and all that stuff. Um, yeah, the earliest result that I've seen is from 1961, and he was working for Gunkel at the time. Um, so that was, you know, but it's and it's amazing to see him. It's this young, almost handsome trim, and he had his teeth and everything, you know. <laughs> uh, he just, it's it's amazing to see. But um, they wanted to really push him. And, um, you know, from the very beginning, they had him in the overalls cut like haystacks. So he was going to be, you know, a haystack-like gimmick. Um, but, you know, when he was younger, as I understand it from people that I've talked to, he was a lot more uh, physically capable. But, you know, years went on, injuries came along, and he became, you know, the big man that we knew later on. But um, I, I can't imagine him in a foxhole, you know, during the Korean War. <laughs> How could you feel? Yeah, I was going to say, he was, he was uh, an easy target, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Everybody else just kind of hid behind him. Because you think about it, when he came along, you know, in the in the '60s, there was nobody like him. I mean, Baba, you know, but even Baba was, you know, not seven feet tall like they built him. But you know, you had guys like Don Leo Jonathan, who everybody considered a giant, and he was only six five, six six. Right. And of course, this was well, you know many years before Andre, but uh, and then you had you had the guys in the even going back in the fifties, you had guys like Max Palmer who was a legit seven foot seven, but that guy was horrible. Yeah. I mean, and was, you've ever seen video Sky of High him? Lee. He was yeah. Uh, Sky High Lee, I think, was was probably not much taller than six five. You know. Oh really? Okay. He, yeah, he wasn't. He was not all. You know, and he had the the. Uh, and I know I'm gonna I'm gonna say it wrong, but the the acro megaly or whatever it's called Lagi, the same thing, yeah, yeah, the same yeah. thing. Pack song had that Baba had, you know, that deformed mm-hmm. big chest, big and skinny arms, and skinny legs. Yep. But 
but I mean, yeah, you had heavy guys, you know, like Happy Humphrey, and and even before there, there was a Farmer Humphrey, before Happy Humphrey, um, back in the in the fifties, and you had Man Mountain Dean and and uh, oh, Martin sure. Blimp Levy and people like that, big men, you know, heavy guys were were fairly common in the business, especially, you know, if Jack Pfeffer had anything to do with them. But you know somebody's stand size being because he was he was pretty close to seven feet if he wasn't at seven feet. And the only I, other person I can think of from that down. era that was even near that was Grizzly Smith. Oh yeah, yep. And was he six foot nine? Yeah, well, I, Grizzly, I because I've got a picture of, of uh, me and Grizzly together, and I'm six five, and he's yeah. a good. Six inches taller than me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He was a huge man. Yeah. I, well, it's true. I mean, then of course you had Ernie Ladd. Of course, he was what six foot eight, six, six foot nine. nine. He's he huge was six guy. Nine, yeah. 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 Um, Stan. Um, I. Some people. His wife swore up and down that he was seven foot one. Um, I've I've heard it from most sources that he was six foot ten. But it's, of course, it's so hard to say nowadays. Uh, I've seen pictures of um, uh, Stan standing next to Hillbilly Jim, who's six foot five. There's, I'm six foot two, and and Hillbilly is much bigger than me. And um, Stan is dwarfs Hillbilly Jim. So I mean, I'd say six foot ten is about right. Yeah, yeah, I would say I would think that's about right. Pretty close. <clears throat> um, it, it's interesting. One one of the things that um, you know when Andre consolidated his power <clears throat> there were certain guys that you probably know this that Andre didn't like and if you were on Andre's bad side you know if, there was no way you would change his mind um, Stan was on his bad side and I don't know if that's because he felt threatened by having another giant around him uh, or not but um, he he never he never wrestled him one on one that I know of um, I mean, that sounds like it would be a dream match, at least in the early 70s. Um, but um, I know he worked in a tag team match uh, against Andre. Um, but um, in the WWF, um, when you know they had the, the wedding of Uncle Elmer and they really wanted to push it big, um, Hulk Hogan was there in the wedding party and they also had Andre. And Andre did not want to be a part of that. And apparently... They had to pay him main event money in order to just stand there and do nothing because he just he didn't <laughs> want to be seen. He didn't want to be seen next to another big man to, to sort of take away from his gimmick. It's kind of interesting, you know? Yeah, it is strange. But, you know, they, they went to great lengths to protect Andre to, to make him look like he was the biggest man in wrestling, and that was the one time that I can think of where they, they were willing to sacrifice that. But no, he uh, he would badmouth um, Stan all the time in the in the locker room, and this is from many of the boys that I've talked to over the years, um, and and all I can think of is just the fact that he didn't want another big man to sort of encroach his territory. All I can think of. Yeah, that's, that's the only thing that would make sense, unless he yeah. bought a bad watch from him. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think Andre had enough to buy a good watch. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. imagine so. Yeah, I can't uh, think of anywhere that they were even on the same card together. 
I mean, you would think um, they would have I, crossed paths somewhere, even even before the WWF, that they would have crossed paths sometimes in, sometime in the 70s. Yeah, I saw one. <clears throat> there was one match. It was um, Andre was teaming. I think it was a six-man tag. Um, Andre was teaming with Ron Michalicek, so this was Memphis. I forget who the third partner was. Let's just say it was Tommy Rich. Um, so it was Andre... Uh, and so that, that that team, and then it was uh, Stan with uh, Jerry Lawler and um, Ernie Ladd. So it was called the Battle of the Giants. That's the only one that I'm uh, definitely sure of. That's documented. And then there's another. There was a tag team match uh, in the WWF where Andre and Uncle Elmer teamed. I think it was King Kong Bundy and Big John Stud. But. It's the only two that I know of over the years. It's amazing. Because hmm. you definitely could have made uh, He money had with uh, a bit of a history with Ernie Ladd because he, uh, both in Louisiana and in um, in Mobile, they they never wrestled in the same match, but they were referees in the same match. Um, <laughs> with uh, Jack and, and Frank Dalton working against. Um, Danny Little Bear and uh, Kelly in Louisiana, and then it was the Daltons against the Fields brothers in Mobile, and they had Ernie Ernie as a referee, and then the Daltons had Big Ed Younger as their referee, which was was tiny. Um, <laughs> so funny. So it was it was odd. I don't know how they well, held the ring up. <laughs> <laughs> They 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 could have had a match. I don't think it would have been beautiful. Uh, <laughs> well, they, they wanted to build up to uh, matches between um, in Omaha. Um, uh, so this would have been, uh, boy, I guess it was Plowboy Frazier up there and uh, and Tex McKenzie. Now, could you imagine how bad that match would have been? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, only yeah. thing, only thing would have made that worse is is put Ox Baker and and, and Moose Cholock in there. Oh. oh man, yeah, that would have been pretty ugly. But but you know, and, and all of these all of these guys too. I mean, you mentioned Ox, you mentioned Moose. I mean, but what great personalities they were, you know. And oh yeah, and all of these guys, it was an extension of who they really were. Um, that doesn't exist in wrestling anymore. Guys are not allowed to. Well, yeah, their own because guys that size are are almost commonplace now. That's what they people expect yeah. a wrestler to look like. I mean, you, especially a territory yeah. like the Mobile Territory, which was mainly junior heavyweights. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. When Jerry came in there, Jerry was what are you six three, six four, Jerry? Three. About two thirty, something mm-hmm. like that. He was a giant yeah. compared yeah. to guys like Ken Lucas at five eight, five nine. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. But but back in the '60s, and like going back to what I was saying about Ernie and, and Stan together, um, just having somebody that size, they didn't even have to do anything. Just have them on the card; oh. they draw a crowd. Of course, you know, course. because they were such an, uh, an anomaly. Because there just was not guys that big back then. Well, and, and Les Thatcher told me once, you know, they he he got stuck with Tiny for a long time, and you know. <laughs> Les went out there and he worked the whole match. Basically, he would he would tag Tiny in. Tiny would would do a punch, maybe the leg drop, and that's all that was necessary. That's all people expected out of him. But you know, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's just funny to think, you know, that that was 
that was what it was back then. You know, it was such a novelty. People were just excited for just that little something different. You know, they didn't expect the world out of you, but just, you know, just the, you know, the visual spectacle, that, that, yeah. You know, and as pro wrestling uh, continued to develop from the 30s and 40s into the 50s and 60s, you know, being a work, uh, as you said, the fans expected to see guys do certain things. Right. And uh, it, they weren't going to, particularly the tag match, was not going to be an extended long match between, you know, two, two, let's say, extensively trained wrestlers. There were going to be guys that, like we've seen here that uh, and talking about, that that had were gimmick wrestlers. And Absolutely. the fans would see what they'd want. The fans would see what they would want to see, and then you know, the guy tag out. It's like you see why, why stay there and try to do it again? You know, freshen it up with another guy, and then come back a little later, and uh, maybe for the finish and do the same thing over again. But I don't think anybody was looking for Stan Frazier to do an extended match. They were looking for him to do whatever he. Yeah, the babyface, the main babyface tag team partner stays in trouble, and then finally tags out Stan. He comes and cleans house, and go they go home. Uh, something right. I've always wondered, Bobby, you may know this since you were working in the office at the time when Fuller <coughs> brought him in. It seemed like he was here, you know, and they they had the thing going with the Freebirds, and it was it was pretty hot. And then all of a sudden, you know. They did an uh, uh, injury angle, and, and Tiny was gone, and they, and they replaced him with Ted DiBiase. What was was there a reason behind his stay cut short, or do you know? Bottom line, he didn't get over. Uh, yeah. You know the the thing here when he had the last run here. <laughs> I know this is off the subject. I probably shouldn't say this, but when you said he came in through a punch and a leg drop. I thought we had switched to a Hulk Hogan match. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, think think about it. It's the same thing. It was the oh, same sure. thing. Uh, yeah. But but the thing with the, with uh, Stan here, Robert brought him in. He was immediately on top. Robert was booking. Yep. And Robert had done this in in in, in Southeastern. He had done it in Knoxville. It had got over. And I'm not saying Georgia fans are any different than any fans anywhere else in the world, but I think Jerry will agree with me. This was a wrestling territory. Sure. They yep. expected guys to be able to go from the get-go. The fans were, were given that week after week after week after week, whether they were big guys, little guys, medium-sized guys. Everybody that came in here could wrestle, could go, could do different things. And when you bring a guy like Frazier in, it was it was exactly the same as Haystacks. I love Haystacks. Mm-hmm. I love to talk to him. I love to be in the dressing room with him. He was a great guy. But you could only use Haystacks for two weeks. He could make the loop twice. You got That's all you can do with him. And that was exactly what was the thing with Stan. And they tried to run programs with Stan where it was drawing money, doing angles, and it just didn't work. And that's the reason they had to uh, – you know, I mean, you look <laughs> replacing Stan with Ted DiBiase. I mean, you, you look at the difference in the quality of the matches you got. Oh, of course, <laughs> that was a well, major upgrade. When when uh, Robert Fuller was done, Stan was done. You know, Fuller's. I think Fuller knew that his days were numbered there, and Stan yeah. was an easy guy to bring in here to kind of finish things up with. And uh, you know, he was on his way out. Uh, Stan came in for a couple of weeks, and it, he, like you said. 
he was gone. That was, uh, you know, uh, the new Booker was uh, was was looking to uh, not only for to freshen things up, but as Bobby said, uh, have somebody that was going to be able to carry main events. And at that point, in seventy, late seventy nine, Stan wasn't going to be able to do it. Well, another thing too, and this is in defense of Robert Fuller, and I've said this on here many times. Robert had great success booking in Knoxville. He had good success booking in Mobile uh, for his brother down there in Pensacola. Booking Atlanta was a totally different animal. Yep. It was a totally it was unique to anything in the industry at the time because of the TV and because of the the audience that you had, and it just you know it it took a very special person to do it. And, and it took a personality to do it that, you know, maybe thought outside the box a little. So it was uh, it just that that whole line of that, that had been successful in other places, the people here in Atlanta just did not buy it. So that's why, so you're telling me that's why they split me and the McGuire twins up. Well, I, <laughs> well, no, they couldn't find anybody to beat you guys, so they had to, you know. That's right. They wouldn't have believed it was going to, you know, somebody was going to be. Well, and and it's interesting, you know, they they brought Stan into into certain areas, but never for a length of. Well, he worked for for Eddie Graham, you know. Talk about a wrestling area, you know, where, where people expect a certain level of excellence. Um, they were wise to bring him in for maybe one two shots and then leave it at that. But to even conceive of doing a program with him. In a territory known for strong workers, it's, it's kind of absurd. I think they probably did the most that they could, but you know that was that was it. Um, you know, it was the only time in Mobile that I remember yeah. him having any kind of extended program was uh, in '68 when he he was in as the convict. He had mm-hmm. oh probably two weeks, two three weeks worth of matches with with Dr. Jerry Graham. Who was, yeah. you know, by that time, you know, 450 pounds himself. Right. But there again, about a somebody guy, that you know. size, that was the draw, <laughs> was just two great big men getting in there together, you know. Of course. It didn't matter to well, the fans it, that they couldn't do anything. It's just that the fact that, you know, such a such a difference from normal people, those, those two big men. Well, and Dr. Jerry Graham, what a great talker he was. I mean, what a, what a great personality. I mean, he he could he could talk anybody in the building for one or two matches, but once you saw <laughs> what he could deliver at that point, you know that that was it. But uh, well, it, basically it's true. that whole I mean, thing, yeah. uh, you know, that was since Mobile didn't have anybody near Jerry Graham's size when he because he had been in and out of that territory going back as far as 1954, but. Yeah. Um, in fact, he was Gulf Coast champion in 1960 or 61. But he came back in 68, and he was just so big that it didn't make yeah. sense. So what they did is, is uh, they put Bill Bowman and Joe Turner with them and put masks on them and you know called them the interns. And yep. and he was successful doing that because, like you said, he could talk. And he, Bill Bowman used to say Jerry Graham could walk into a room and never open his mouth, and people hated him. Yep. Just the way he carried himself, <laughs> and so yeah. you know they would they were using Stan as a, a a special you know special referee or something because of his size when he, when he was the convict, and that led to of course you know him getting into it with the interns and with Jerry Graham and it led to that whole thing and then um, 
they had a hair versus mask match, I think is what they that finally handed him his run as the convict. He had to unmask. Yeah. And then they did a, a, a loser leaves town after that, and of course Stan lost, and he was gone. But <clears throat> but that's the only extended program I can remember him even having in Mobile that territory, because like I said before, he was just he would come in for you know two or three weeks as a, as a as a you know trouble you know a troubleshooter or whatever you want to call it. He would come in and yeah. team with with a, the top baby face against the top heel tag team or whatever, and and. You know the fans would get what they wanted, and the, the blow off he'd he'd beat whoever, and then they he'd be gone again. Of course, I think he was he. I don't know if he worked another job or anything like that, other than being a bouncer at the Red Barn well, and the State Line. I'm sure he did something else over. Oh, he, he had a shoe store for many years, Fraser Shoes, and uh, he would he would advertise that on on local wrestling and. Uh, of, of course, you know, just his general business dealings that he did, um, he was able to sustain himself that way. Um, but it was always, it was always sort of like, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the best he could do with what he had. He was, he was never truly pr- proficient in anything. Did he, um, uh, uh, Jay West here, did he, did he actually do anything with the shoe business or was it mostly just putting his name on it? No, he he actually had a shoe store. Um, Percy told me about it. Um, he took me to the spot where it was, and it was right there in Pascagoula. Uh, in fact, I have a canceled check with a Fraser's sta- shoes stamp on it, so it was legit. Um, I can't remember for the life of me the exact location, but uh, of course Percy's not here to show me anymore. But uh, yeah, it was legit. He had he did have a shoe store, and he was a promoter as well. He he promoted his own matches. Um, here and there, um, you know, he didn't. He, he wasn't the most successful promoter, but he did all right. Um, I've heard rumors for years, and I got to talk to Coco about it. Apparently, he trained Coco Beware. Well, that's where Coco learned that great drop kick from Stan. <laughs> <laughs> of course, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's that's what I've been told. Um, so I I need to you know th- this is part of my journey to to sort of dig things up because he's a guy that people know and have talked about but they sort of put their memories to the side and and that's why I think a book would be so fascinating. Um, well, another thing. Oh, I too, agree because I mean, um, like I said, yeah. as much as I've you know researched the Gulf Coast territory and him in and out of there, I know nothing about his his background other than the fact he was from Pascagoula. Cause, and the only reason I know that is because they yeah. called him the Pascagoula Plowboy. Of course, yeah. Well, he just, um, I think he was resigned to the fact that he was going to be traveling all of his life, like Haystack or like Abdullah. It's just, that's the life of that kind of worker, you know. Um, yeah. So it is really hard to to pin down any facts on them because they're just all, all over the place. And, of course, they make things up and they lie. And, of course, like all all the boys did back then to sort of create their, their aura, Um but um, the other problem that I faced over the years is because I I was a fan, um, some of the boys didn't want to tell me anything negative about him. So, <laughs> and I and I you know Bob Kelly and Bill Bowman they were the same way. You know they 
They said, well, we don't want to say anything negative about him. I said, I know all the negative things. You don't have to hide it. But unfortunately, the stories went with them. And I tried for years to get the stories out of them, but they wouldn't say it. So mm. I don't, I don't know. Did it, yeah. did it change you seeing as you heard the bad stuff? I mean, did, did it did it, did it make you say, well, you know, he, maybe I don't want to do the book or I'm not no, interested in I'm doing the book as I thought I would be? Honestly, it just makes him a more fascinating character. You know, everything that I've heard about him is is so unique and so extreme. And you know, he's more akin to like an old time vaudevillian than than a professional wrestler in many ways. You know, just always looking for a booking, always looking for uh, another dollar, any way that he could get it. You know, and and he's he's that way. You know, Henny Youngman towards the end of his life, apparently for many years. He would get signed for a gig. He would play, let's say, a bar mitzvah. You know, he wasn't working the big arenas anymore, um, but he would be performing for, let's say, 150 people at a Holiday Inn. He would go in the lobby, and he would start soliciting work right after a gig. And he'd say, look, I'll take anything you got, you know, 50 bucks, $100. I'll perform for you and your wife tonight, you know. And it, it seems to me that Stan Frazier was exactly that kind of guy, you know. Um, and really, that's old-time performers had to be resourceful just to survive, you know, living right. from gig to gig. Um, you know, he was he was lucky to have the protection of Memphis. I mean, you know that that was that was a godsend for him. But even there, he could only last for so long, and then they they had to freshen things up a bit. But uh, no, I I think all of the things that I've heard about him, negative and positive, just make up such a fascinating story. I mean, I I it just makes it more intriguing for me. And I think I think once people start learning about him more. Um, well, they might not enjoy his matches more, but <laughs> they'll certainly enjoy uh, or appreciate him more for what he brought to to wrestling. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say Memphis as as his haven. The last time I saw him in 1985, I went with Ann Uncle and Jerry was there that night. We went to um, we did did uh, film some matches at the Mid South Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a joint venture between Ann and Jerry Jarrett to uh, pitch a thing to ESPN. And oh, okay. uh, we, uh, Stan was in the dressing room that night, and he was he was selling watches and talking trash, and you know, but yeah. that was the last time I saw him. So he he wasn't on the card; he wasn't working; he was just there. Yeah, well, he's probably just. Letting people know, hey, I'm still here. You know, give me a booking. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, this, you know, I've got a, I've age. got a photo yep. that uh, that has been a, an absolute mystery to me. It's it's with Stan, but he's not in his hillbilly gimmick. He's wearing you know uh, a red outfit, red tights, red red uh, bodysuit type thing, and he's with yep. Armand Hussein and Bob Boyer. But Bob Boyer's in his Bobby Bold Eagle gimmick, and I've I yeah. have rack, I've had that picture for twenty years, and I, I, I've racked my brain where that could have been taken, because the three okay. of them all worked in Mobile, but Bob Boyer never did the Bob the Bold Eagle gimmick there. The only place I know he did that was for Bruiser, but Armand Hussein, as far as I know, never worked for Bruiser. 
Okay. The only thing I can yeah, think of is that, it, you know, they would have passed somewhere. You know, I don't know. I can't think of anywhere where they would have all been in there at the same time to have that photo made. I have a picture of Stan uh, with Armand Hussein and um, – why am I blanking on his name right now? The the the, the governor who ended up getting shot. Um, George, George Wallace. George yeah. Wallace. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, I've seen the, that the picture. Now, that was taken when they were. The, I can tell you exactly when that was taken. That one was taken in 1972 yeah. or 73. 73 was when that was was made because they were both in the Mobile area at that time. I know Stan worked up for Dean Silverstone, like Armand Hussein did as well. But I don't know if Bob Boyer went up there. And, and again, it's one of those things. I mean, he he went to so many places, did so many things, and it could have conceivably been his own promotion as well. Um, yeah, that's what I, I was thinking that too. Because he's wearing a title belt in in that picture, if I'm not mistaken. And I think somebody told me it was the Mississippi yeah. heavyweight title, but that wouldn't. Well, have been he had for, his own super yeah. heavyweight title that he that he carried around with him for, for a long time. That's right. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, in I don't remember what year. I want to say it was 80, 85, 86, 87, somewhere in there, when Rip Tyler had uh, the WOW promotion out of Pensacola, Stan worked for him a couple of times and defended oh, yeah. that super heavyweight title. He would also um, defend that title in Memphis against uh, Jerry Blackwell. Uh, they had um, Fred Ottman was in there at the time. What, was he Big Bubba at the time? Yeah, I think and, he was uh, Big they, Bubba. Yeah, and then there was a guy named Goliath as well. So, um, yeah, he he did defend that against uh, a few of the, the Giants, but that was that was always his that that he carried along with him. But uh, yeah, it's he. Again, it's a mystery for me, even after all of these years, after all of my research and studies and, and so forth. I mean, it's just it's it's an ongoing mystery. But again, that's what makes him so fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, there there are books about guys that were really prominent and, and beloved um, where the, the material is so easy to find. But I don't know. This, this is a great challenge for me. Uh, another story that I don't know if you've ever heard. And I really don't believe it holds any water, but a lot of people have told me that Stan was in that famous Bigfoot footage the Bigfoot, from the late yeah, 1960s. I, that, yeah. Yeah, I tell you where that came from. That came from him. That was that was a story he used to tell the boys. Ah, well, that's, okay. That was me. <laughs> that was me. He claimed that some guy paid him, and, and you know, I don't know. I've heard somebody has debunked that that it actually was a guy in a suit, but it wasn't Stan. Okay. But he, he, that, that story originated with him himself. Next time well, I see that film clip, yeah. I'll have to look at it closer. <laughs> well, because for a while he went as Bigfoot Frazier. And this was, uh, he was supposed to be in a movie called Capture the Big Capture of the Bigfoot. Um, he was signed for it and was supposed to be in it, but he showed up and the, the costume that they gave him um, made him. They were. It, he was in so much pain in that costume. The, the guy who designed it had never done a costume before, um, you know, that, that needed to be used for uh, motion pictures. So um, it caused a lot of health issues for him, and he had to pull out of the movie. But um, yeah, he was. He he wrote on that as well. Um, 
So that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. But again, I mean, all of these things are so absurd. I mean, how could they not make up a fascinating book, you know? Unbelievable. Oh boy. Yeah, but it's um it's it's a shame that uh you know, there there are so many guys from wrestling that, that you have all met over the years that, you know, in 10, 15 years' time, I mean, no one's going to remember. Um, so thank goodness for the Internet. Thank goodness for the historians out there who, who sure. care to take the time uh, to, to tell the stories that, that really, you know, it's it's like if to, to know where you're going, you got to know where you've been. And, and the history of wrestling is, is so rich and so interesting and diverse. I mean, it's 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 worth documenting on, on every level. Sure, uh, because not only are the guys in that area uh, era gone, but many of the historians that uh, have that information are starting to leave us too. So you oh, know, as much okay. mentioned yeah. one earlier this evening. Uh, so you know, the information has got to be put down, and uh, it's it's, it's got to be there for. Uh, future reference, uh, you know, when when somebody says, "Oh, I saw this uh, super wrestler on uh, WWE," and uh, and you know, it's the old story. Oh, you think that's a wrestler? Huh? Let me tell you about Plowboy Frazier or something. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and it's and it's just funny too how people think they invented the world. You know, young people coming into the industry now, but they're just referring back to old things that have been done time and time again. Of course. Sure. We who have been around a little bit longer know better. <laughs> so it's like all the hipsters that are coming out here on the West Coast. I don't know if you have it in in other parts of the country, but um, they're sort of bringing back sort of a, a renaissance of handcrafted, um, you know, leather and, uh, and and food. Well, like Portland, Oregon is having a, a huge renaissance of, of food and culture, um, but it's all brought about by the young people. But they're just referring back to all of the things that have been done in the past using old techniques uh, right. that that were, you know, handed down and sort of ignored for a while. But uh, the young people are acting like they invented it all and walking around with an arrogance on their face, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I so, think it's tied to politics. I think it's tied to politics, too, a bit. And, yeah. uh, you know, so they, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's what makes them who they are, and they think they're unique, you know. Of course. Well, it's like we've said on this show several times, you know, uh, especially talking about bookers like uh, Tom Ernesto and Leo Garibaldi. Leo Garibaldi did a a notebook full of finishes that he and matches he'd been involved with or matches that he booked. If it was a good finish and it got over 30 years ago, it would get over now. Yeah. You know, because nobody's (laughs) seen it in that length of time. You know, yeah, sure. I have somebody. I don't know. The industry has changed so much. Oh, it has. I mean, it's different animal entirely. But, but the things that that thrilled people back then can still, you know, thrill people now. It just needs to be modernized somehow. Yeah. Sure. I mean, my my time in watching professional wrestling goes back to the early fifties, but in really. Coming, becoming a fan, uh, you know, before getting involved in the businesses that I did in about 75. But between 68 and 74 uh, was the prime time for me to be a fan. But 
based on having the knowledge that I have from that, look at a, a, a match from the early 50s, and, you know, I can say, you know, that that's really interesting to look at. It's a little bit different, but uh, it, it, it lets me know, you know, where the, where the profession went to, and these two guys that are in there, uh, you know, are, are are putting on a great match. It's different, but it's a great match, and I'm I, and I think that uh, you know we've got to make sure that that the WWE doesn't doesn't take all of this footage. There's some that's still out there with Paul Bosch's widow, I think, and we just got to oh. make sure that uh, these guys, you know, somebody doesn't just take all of this footage so that it's uh, it, it's not going to be available for. Uh, you know, real wrestling fans to see later on. Well, it's as valuable as saving uh, silent movies. It really is. Sure. Be- yes. Because that's that's the history of cinema. It's it's where everything came from. All all of these ideas that we that we think and all these emotions that we feel when we watch movies. Everything started then. You know, sure. you see a comedy today, and there's echoes of Charlie Chaplin. There's even Fatty Arbuckle. There's there's little touches. That, that oh, go way, way back. Um, right. You have to preserve that. Yep. You know, seeing Metropolis, the silent movie, I mean, if you're a sci-fi fan, uh, uh, yeah. you can't help but see that. Oh, that and, movie uh, was so influential. You can see that in just about, you can see you can see snippets of Metropolis in a whole lot of, of you know, futuristic type movies that are coming out even now. Just, you know, yep. that, that movie was so far ahead of its time. It's one of my favorite movies. Oh, well, Jerry, I know it's, it's past brilliant. your bedtime, so... It's getting close, guys. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, gentlemen, this has been a pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. We're oh, certainly uh, glad to have you, you were able to get on tonight. Thank you. Very Thank good. you so much, guys. I'll let you all have a, a wonderful evening and uh, look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks, right, sir. Kurt. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for joining us. Thank good you, guys. Night. Okay, take care now. All right, uh, I'm going to have to cut out in a little while. But Bobby, did you uh, uh, want to talk about uh, going out to Las Vegas, or did you want to save that for next week or something? Well, no, that's fine. We, we uh, Myself and uh, uh, Randy Corrin, who worked in the Atlanta office with me, and Scrappy McGowan and Gene Bennett, who's been on our show several times, we uh, we decided to drive this year. So we did uh, we did 12 states in 11 days. And uh, we just kind of made a little vacation out of it on the trip back. We went to, uh, first of all, I was very honored to get the Charlie Smith Referee Award in Las Vegas this year. Uh, as I told them, uh, we, we have many acquaintances that we come across, but but uh, Charlie is uh, Charlie is not an acquaintance. He's a friend. And for me to, get an award, me to get an award with his name on it was a great honor. And, and, and the only other person that had ever won it was James Roach, and he's, He's he's class all the way, so I'm I'm very honored to be included in in on that list. But uh, uh, we got through with Cauliflower Alley, and we left, and we went by we went to the Grand Canyon, and uh, uh, we went to a place called Four Corners. And if you've never anybody that's never been, if you ever get a chance to go, it's where Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, it's where their borders meet. It's the only place in the United States. Wow where four states come together in one spot and it's run by the Navajo Indians. It's on their reservation and it is a it is a it is a phenomenal it's out in the middle of nowhere. I mean it's in the middle of the desert, but it is a phenomenal place to go and just uh uh visit to just something you can say you've done. Uh 
we went to uh, uh, we went to Winslow, Arizona, and stood on the corner uh, uh, from the Eagle song "Take It Easy" back in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, Bobby built... told me that, and I I told him I, I wondered what the, any of the four of them would be able to do if a girl in a flatbed Ford actually came by. They wouldn't none of them be able to do anything with her. No, we couldn't, but we could have dreamed. Uh, <laughs> but they built a statue of Jackson Brown and of Glenn Fry there on on a corner in Winslow, and we went by and made some pictures of that, and then we uh, we went to Billy the Kid's grave, which was was, was interesting to me. Uh, he's buried in a little place called Fort Sumner, New Mexico, and that was kind of an interesting thing. And uh, uh, the last place we st- well we stopped in Lubbock, Texas, which was for me. Uh, my wife had a half brother she never met, and uh, unfortunately he uh, he died when he was 19, and uh, I went I was able to go by his grave and and just pay my respects, and uh, it was kind of a personal thing for me. And then we we came back through Oklahoma City by the Murrow Center where the uh, the memorial is built, where they blew the they blew that building up, and uh, it was kind of, it was a neat thing and. And then we came home, but we had a we had a great time, and and uh, they're already talking about wanting to do it again next year and figure out some other places to go see. So, uh, uh, it's uh, we did forty, right at forty eight hundred miles in eleven days, just a just a week wow. in the Oklahoma territory for Jerry. But uh, it was uh, we had a fun time. It was a great trip. And, Sounds uh, like it. now if I can get my body back on Georgia time, I'll be in good shape. <laughs> Ron Starr, uh, was it? Who was it? I was talking to. wasn't Ron Starr. I was talking to somebody else. Oh, the week uh, Stubbs was on was on uh, the show. Jerry, you weren't weren't with us at, uh, two weeks ago when Jerry Stubbs was on. He's got one of those cushy jobs, like government jobs, like you, where he works like two days a week. Of course, you work more, but he's you know works in the courthouse like six six hours a day, three days a week. But he said to uh, you to call him and, and hook him up with uh, with him a golf cart down there on Tybee Island so he can ride around down there with you. <laughs> Did we lose Jerry? Yes, he's gone. Yep, he's, he's gone. gone. Okay. Well, Jerry, yeah, you're talking, Jerry you're ain't giving that gig up, I can tell you right now. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> Oh, I know. Well, all right, well, guys. I think we've—I've depleted it. Yeah, we beat everybody in the territory. So yeah, I'm um, glad to have you back, Jay. And again, happy birthday to the two of you guys. And uh, thank you thank so you, much. Thank you. Everything, and uh, we will uh, get together next week. I'm—I've got uh, a couple of things lined up. I've, I've got one thing I'm hoping for for next week uh, which I won't announce yet because I don't know for sure and if that falls through I've got something else so and if it does come through then something else I have will be for week after next so we've got some things coming up in the next couple weeks it should be interesting Uh, but anyway this was fun tonight guys Kurt's a a good guy I've I've known Kurt for for many many years and and first time I've ever ever had an extended uh, conversation with him but he's a great guy if nothing else for immortalizing charlie smith in animated form so uh yeah but anyway yeah, uh, we never we'll, we never even got to talk to him about what he does for a living uh i don't even do i guess we miss he works for walt disney world or walt disney wow yeah. 
and, I, and I'm not sure exactly what he does out there, but uh, he's been with them for a number of years. But uh, he's uh, that's got to be interesting in itself. Sure. All right, guys. Well, we will get together again next week, and we'll we'll do this one more time. All righty. Hey, okay, Mike, good night, fellas. Mike, can you give good me night. a call, please, sir? I will. Thank you, sir. All good right. night, guys. Good night. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.